You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. This morning we will focus on the 72nd Psalm. I want to invite you to turn there in your Bible, maybe in the Bible in front of you, on your mobile device, but we'll be in Psalm 72. So please take this time to turn there. But before we read it together, let us bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask this morning for our eyes to be opened, our ears to hear, and our hearts to be softened, that you will speak to us. Thank you for your love and your care for us, demonstrated by giving us Jesus and granting to your children the Holy Spirit. We love you and we praise you in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Let's read Psalm 72 together. Of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth, In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever and ever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. By the early fall of 1796, 
George Washington had served in national public life for more than 20 years, beginning as a delegate to the First Continental Congress and then going on from there to serve as the commanding general of the Continental Army, Washington quickly became one of the most compelling of all of the founding fathers of the American Revolution. His acclaim, his virtue, his leadership had essentially guaranteed and delivered his victory, unanimous victories in the Electoral College to the presidency twice. It's not too much to say that Washington was loved. He was beloved by his people. So much so that, you know, throughout the ages, we've come to reference him as the father of his country. We've named after George Washington our federal district, another state, and even one of our local high schools. But as Washington's second term as president came to a close, he set a long-standing and an important precedent by declining to seek a third term. Instead, he wanted to retire. So to make this announcement, what has come to be known as George Washington's farewell address was published in the newspapers and circulated in pamphlets in September of 1796. You can imagine the uncertainty of the people that they must have felt to learn that their beloved leader was leaving them. And you can imagine the weight that his last words had on the people that would read and hear them. In a similar manner, we are invited in Psalm 72 to hear the last words of the greatest, most benevolent, most admired, most righteous, most victorious king Israel had ever had to this point, King David. Now, you may have noticed a very interesting thing as we read Psalm 72 together. It begins with the inscription of Solomon. But it ends with the postscript, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So who actually wrote this psalm? Was it David or his son Solomon? Well, most scholars seem to agree that the, the psalm was composed into its poetic form by Solomon. So it was written by Solomon, but he, he really did so using, relying on the last words spoken to him or in public by his father, King David. And he did this for a reason. He did this so that people would remember the wisdom and truth in the words of this departing earthly king. That to quote the reformer John Calvin, no government in the world can be rightly managed but under the conduct of God and by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Just as Washington's farewell address at one point was more widely circulated, more widely published than even the Declaration of Independence, Solomon believed that the last words of his father, the great King David, needed to be remembered for the good of the people. More than that, as we can see from the doxology at the end of this psalm, they needed to be remembered for the glory of God. Therefore, if we were to sum, excuse me, for Christians, as people given the New Testament, it is quite honestly very easy to see how Jesus is the true and better object of Psalm 72. Not King David, not Solomon, but King Jesus is the true good king. So if we were to sum up and condense what is in Psalm 72, we would say this, Psalm 72 is prophetic expectation that the universal human longing for a good king 
would be fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. I'll say that again. Psalm 72 is prophetic expectation that the universal human longing for a good king would be fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. Other preachers and scholars and commentators like Charles Spurgeon or James Montgomery Boyce have identified the structure and the themes of Psalm 72 as really describing the character of the reign of King Jesus. The character of his reign as being righteous, everlasting, universal, compassionate, and prosperous. I think that's good to go through once more. Just the reign of King Jesus is a reign that is righteous, everlasting, universal, compassionate, and prosperous. I wanted that to be on the the screen for you, and I wanted you to be able to write that down. Uh, I won't expound on those points specifically for my sermon, because to do so would really be to take someone else's work. Uh, But I wanted to use that framework. Uh, I wanted that that framework uh, written for you, so that when you read it, at a later date, when you read Psalm 72 at a later date, it is helpful for you. It is helpful to see this structure and framework as it's presented in the text. But this morning, I want to rely on those themes and this structure as it's, as it's found in the text to meditate on four things. Four things. The attributes of the good king. The actions of the good king. The response of the people to the good king and the effects of the good king on the land. I'll go through that again. The attributes of the good king, the actions of the good king, the response of the people to the good king, and the effects of the good king on the land. Let's read beginning in verse 1. We read, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness, and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Three times, three times in the first three verses, we read that word righteousness. And also three times in that same span, That same passage, we read the word justice, or a variation of that word when the psalmist says, may he judge, justice. So therefore, what are the attributes of the good king? Righteousness, justice, righteousness and justice. Whose righteousness, whose justice? Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. What we see in these opening passages is really the first prayer that, if granted, makes all of the rest of the prayers of the rest of the psalm come true. How else could the mountains bear prosperity or the children of the needy be delivered if God does not grant to the good king his righteousness or his justice? As I alluded to earlier, If Solomon wanted the people of Israel to remember one very practical thing, or if knowing that his time as king was coming to an end, David knew one thing was critical for the success of his descendants on the throne, it was this, that good government and peace can only come as a gracious blessing from God. 
See, going all the way back to in the time of Moses when he was giving the law to the people, God gave specific instructions that would be applicable when the time came for Israel to select a king. In Deuteronomy 17, and you're welcome to turn there with me in your Bibles, Deuteronomy 17, we read these words beginning in verse 14. This is Moses giving the law to the people. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And skipping down now to to verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." You see, God has always ordained, and it is still true today, that the only way for peace to be established in the land is that his law be upheld and followed, and that whomever would lead the people would be humble and committed to God's law. This was even true in creation, in the Garden of Eden. God gave his law, you shall not eat from this tree. That was God's law. And as long as you don't eat from this tree in the garden, there was peace in the land, fellowship with God. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Fellowship with God, peace in the land, the Hebrew word being shalom. I'm not trying to make a political statement, but just because we are are Americans and just because we don't have a king doesn't, and we're not a theocracy, it doesn't make this any less true. Christians should desire from their leaders and their government law and policy that honors God's law. God has given us his law and made truth known by giving us the Bible. And therefore, it is a good thing to ask that our leaders only make law and policy that honors God and honors his law. What does that look like? Well, I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself here. Uh, but we can see what it looks like to govern with righteousness and justice when we consider the actions of the good king. Just look at the verbs back in Psalm 72. I'm paraphrasing from verse 4 here, but the good king defends his people. He delivers the needy. He crushes the oppressor. And I'm paraphrasing and picking up again here in verse 12. He has pity on the weak, and he saves the lives of the needy. He redeems his people from oppression and violence. Friends, we should desire these same things in our government and from our leaders. We should desire God's righteousness and God's justice to be granted to all human governments throughout the world. Because as I mentioned earlier, quoting Calvin, no government in the world can be rightly managed except under the conduct of God and by the guidance of his Holy Spirit. Those of us as Christians... And citizens of our earthly kingdoms will constantly experience the frustration and disappointment when our leaders don't honor God and his law. David didn't do it completely. 
Solomon did it even less. And by the third generation of David's line, the king and the kingdom had grown so disobedient, so much so that it began to unravel and even split up. But here is our hope. We can and we should draw a distinction between our earthly governments and the kingly rule and everlasting reign of King Jesus. I keep saying that word, government. Those of you who know me, and I know not many of you know me all that well, but those of you who know me know that I maybe care a little bit too much about government. Current events, policy, economics, politics. But the more I say that word, government, the more I'm reminded of those words in Isaiah, where Isaiah prophesies to the people, prophesies that the people walking in darkness would see a great light. Isaiah 9, if you want to turn there, to the people of Israel, and really the whole world that was in darkness, a child would be born, whom we know was Jesus, and the government would be on his shoulder. And his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Get this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. And on the throne of David and over his king to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. David reigned in Israel for about 40 years. Solomon reigned as king for another 40 years. And all the while in each of their kingdoms, the best they could do, the very best they could do was uphold the standard of righteousness. That's God's law. They could uphold it. Maybe, maybe they could uh, enforce it. Maybe they could reward it. But that was the best they could do. Look at verse 7. We're back in Psalm 72. In his days, may righteousness, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Only the everlasting king will have a reign that outshines the sun and outlives the moon. And only Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can actually create righteousness where there was none before. This is how God works. This is what he does. He creates something out of nothing. Only he can do that. Only Jesus can soften the hard hearts of the wicked, open the eyes of the blind, make the dead to come alive and transform people from being law-haters to being, as we saw in Psalm 119, law-lovers. He makes the unrighteous righteous. If you hear nothing else today, I hope you hear this. Jesus Christ, by the power of His Holy Spirit, can transform your heart to love God's law. That may sound like a silly thing. Who would want to love God's law? Who really wants to be restricted like that? You might say, I'm my own man. I want to go my own way and do my own thing. Well, really, how's that working out for you? No, really, how is that working out for you? It may look like things are going okay for you right now. But play that out. 
How does that work in the next five years, ten years, going your own way, doing your own thing? What's the effect in your life and your relationships? Even for those of us here today who wouldn't consider themselves enemies of God's law, how is it going not submitting that one habitual sin to the kingship of Jesus? How is prayerlessness working out for you? How is pride working out for you? Do you experience the peace and the prosperity, the flourishing, the spiritual prosperity pictured for us in Psalm 72? Or is your heart and your soul like a barren desert? Back to verse 6. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. King Jesus heals the broken. He restores the empty. More than that, because Jesus laid down his life for you, by faith in him, you can have his perfect record of righteousness. Turn to him. Bend your knee and offer your heart and your life in service to this good king. See what he does. Let's look at the actions of the good king. Again, reading in verse 12. Let's look at the verbs in Psalm 72. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and preciouses their blood in his sight. Building on what we discussed earlier, the good king does at least these four things. He delivers, he pities, he saves, and he redeems. You know, it's easy for me to think, when I think of a king, to think of someone who's really only concerned with his or her majesty. Maybe that's just me, but that's the way my brain works. We view royalty as being different from us, the commoners. And maybe that's just one of the reasons for this endless interest in the British royal family. <laughs> there is such a demand for content, whether it's paparazzi in the National Enquirer or even The Crown on Netflix. Such a demand for content to learn more about these royals. And it seems to come from almost this weird desire to be comforted that the royals, they're just like us. Or maybe that their problems are even worse than ours. <laughs> but this is, this is legitimately ripped from the headlines. Royals, they're just like us. <laughs> they have bad hair days. They have embarrassing moments with their kids. They eat ice cream. These are headlines. <laughs> us Weekly, I think. But the truth is, they're not just like us. They couldn't be any more different. They are royalty, and you and I, we are not. So maybe that's what's so intriguing about the actions that the king takes in verse 12. He seems almost strangely conserved, fo concerned, focused even on the needy, the poor, the weak, and the oppressed. Last week, Andy referenced the parable of the prodigal son. And in Luke 15, when Jesus told that parable, it says he did so while the tax collectors and sinners 
were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. When Jesus called his disciple Matthew, Matthew says, Jesus reclined at table with many tax collectors and sinners. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? In New Testament biblical language, it would be hard to get much lower than to be a tax collector or a sinner. Sinners were adulterers, prostitutes, undereducated roughnecks who did not know and did not follow God's law. And yet, in scene after scene in the Gospels, it shows Jesus ministering to, caring for, and demonstrating God's love for the lowest of the low. At the time, in that time and in that culture in the world, women and children had no legal standing, yet the first witness to Jesus' resurrection were women. And Jesus himself said of the little children that wanted to see him and meet him, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The Apostle Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians 2 that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. The good king delivers the needy. He has pity on the weak. If you are weak, if you are in need, if you ever feel weak, if you ever feel in need, you do not serve a king that says, God helps those who help themselves. You serve the only king who left his heavenly throne, became a man, felt all of our pain, faced all the same temptations we face, yet did so without sin, a king who was stripped of his dignity was falsely accused and died the death of a vile criminal with a crown of thorns on his head and under a sign that read, King, King of the Jews. This is our King. Friend, Jesus did more than just pity you if you are in spiritual need. If you are alienated from God the Father, Jesus sees you, has compassion on you, and... and pities you as the good king, and even so much more. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, the king of kings saves you from the oppression of the prince of darkness. And he redeems your life. Let's look again at Psalm 72, beginning in verse 8, to see the response of the people to the good king. Beginning in verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The psalmist describes the ways the people respond to the good king. The nations, from sea to sea, from the ends of the earth, even those tribes that wander through the desert, 
They all render tribute. They bring gifts to the good king. Now, the psalmist doesn't say the king extorts any of the nations and the peoples under his dominion. The people simply and gladly give offerings to the good king. For what it's worth, I want you to consider what it is you offer to the good king. King Jesus. And I hope you'll excuse me for maybe being a little bit excited here. But I want to challenge you to think way bigger than just your time and your money offered to the church. See, the psalmist doesn't get very specific about the kinds of gifts that are offered to the king. But the imagery that seems presented here is essentially the very best of the fruits of the harvest from each far-off land. Think oranges from Florida. (laughs) Cheese from Wisconsin, cranberries from Massachusetts, pasta from Tuscany. You get the picture. But we can go even a little bit further than agriculture. If Jesus is king, if Jesus is king and he has dominion over all, have you considered what it would be to give your life, every activity, every activity of your life, all of your energy and all the work of your hands as tribute to him? Have you ever thought that if Jesus is Lord of creation and from him and to him are every good thing, that to him tribute should be rendered from even the movie studios of Hollywood and the recording studios of Nashville, the lecture halls of Harvard, the trading pits of the New York Stock Exchange, the laboratories of Johns Hopkins University, and the oil fields of Texas? That to him belongs the tightest spiral in the NFL and the deepest three-pointer in the NBA. The psalmist gives us this image of the nations laying before the king their very best that each has to offer. What would it look like for you to view the work of your hands as worship and tribute to Jesus? What would it look like for you to see all the roles and responsibilities you have in your life as opportunities to honor your king. Even your hobbies and your pastimes, your leisure, could it be that you should pursue them for the glory of God? Let's finally examine the effect of the good king in the land. Picking up again in verse 15. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessing invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations Call him blessed. The effect of the good king in the land is abundance, peace, and prosperity. I had to laugh last week when Andy referenced the Lion King because for whatever reason, I also feel the need uh, to use the Lion King as an illustration for this point. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm assuming that everyone here has seen the movie or at least knows enough about it to get the point that I'm trying to make. But... In the movie, the African plains that are shown under the leadership of the great king, Mufasa, 
Those, those plains are luscious and plentiful. It's easy to see that under good leadership, life abounds. But when his evil brother, Scar, becomes king, those same plains become desolate wastelands. And this imagery resonates with us. It doesn't have to be explained or made explicit. Somehow we just understand that, like the proverb says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Essentially, where there is bad leadership, there is suffering. But where there is good leadership, even the lands flourish. I'm going back to the theme from the first point, that is, the only way for peace to be established in the land is if God's law is upheld and followed. That was in the mind of David as he spoke his final words to his son, King Solomon. And it was in the mind of Solomon, it was the truth that Solomon knew needed to be enshrined in a psalm for God's people, but clearly it wasn't the only thing. As we have seen, no human king could ever be the good king described in Psalm 72. And David and Solomon knew that God had promised a king would come from their descendants to occupy the throne in Israel forever. And that king did come. Jesus of Nazareth was born into the line of David. And when he was, the gospels say that kings from the east journeyed to bring their gifts to this newborn king. Do you hear it? May the kings of Sheba and Seba, those are far off lands, bring gifts May all kings fall down before him. Do you hear it? In all of Jesus' life and ministry, he preached the righteousness and justice of God. He was a friend of sinners, and he showed God's love to the sick and the lowly. And at the end of his ministry, he, filled, he fulfilled even the prophecy of Zechariah by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and being hailed by the people as king of Israel only to a few days later be mocked, ridiculed, and crucified as being called the king. But when he rose from the grave, his enemies, Satan and death, had to lick the dust. And the picture given to us in Revelation is of King Jesus on the throne, receiving praise from all creatures in heaven and on earth, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let us pray. God, we praise you and we thank you that Jesus is our true King, we thank you for these words given to us in Psalm 72 so we can learn the sheer goodness and the blessing that abounds in Christ's kingdom. We thank you that Jesus rules and reigns with righteousness and justice, and we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make righteousness flourish in all of our lives. Let us see that life abounds 
in service to the King of Kings. And there is peace. May we experience the peace from following his law. Deliver us from the sin in our hearts and the death and despair of the Prince of Darkness. With all creatures in heaven and on earth, we praise you, Jesus, and we long for your glorious return. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen.